Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 63 of our podcast, where we're actually going to talk about special education. We are so well aware that there have been so many questions about special education. So we have a really great guest for today's podcast. So um, in case you're just now joining us, my name is Tony Rose Deanna and she, her pronouns. I am a program manager here at Modern Classroom, and I'm so excited to have Kadeja and Noah, who are both special education teachers and also mentors for Modern Modern Classroom. So um, with that being said, welcome to you both. I really, really appreciate you saying yes to the podcast and making the time to do this recording and just talk about your experience. So this is Kadeja Zanoa's second time being on the podcast. So welcome back. I'm just excited to be able to get to know you both um, because this is our first time really talking to each other, which is really exciting, right? <laughs> yeah, great. Great to be back. Thanks for, uh, thanks for asking me to join again. Yeah, great to be back. Yay. Okay. So before we get started, tell us more about who you are and how you started your MCP journey. So we'll start with Kadeja. Sure. Uh, so I started off as a, a resident teacher in DC public schools um, in 2014. So I've been exclusively in middle school and sixth grade for most of the time I've been teaching. Um, I was initially a special educator in a um, behavior and education support self-contained class and eventually taught inclusion English and reading intervention. Around 2017 or 2018, um, I started flipping my reading intervention class, and that's when I found the Modern Classrooms Project um, during some of the research for that. So I was absolutely obsessed with everything that I saw. I really admired many of the educators who were implementing the model. So I joined one of the last cohorts of DC-based fellows, and I've just been implementing the model ever since. So first I've done it virtually and now in person. I also mentored teachers participating in our virtual summer institute this past summer, and it was just such an awesome experience. I learned so much from the teachers that I mentored. Um, and currently, I'm still teaching sixth grade English, as well as social studies and reading intervention in D.C. public schools. Oh, my. It seems like you have your hands full. <laughs> and I... And I also feel like I should have been talking to you from the get-go. I've had some mentees who did like reading intervention, and we had to get really creative with how we can make the model work for them. Thank you for sharing. Uh, so my name's Noah Babelmacher. I have been a public school teacher in the New York City uh, Department of Education for the past five years, starting my sixth year now. Um, I've been a special education teacher the entire time. Um, in the earlier part of my teaching career was sort of your typical special education teacher, jack of all trades in various different classes and contents across grade levels. Um, but over the past couple of years, I have been lucky enough to settle in um, in co-teaching both 11th and 12th grade language and literature, um, which is really my background and, and my passion of literature and writing. So being able to be a special education teacher specifically in those content areas has has really been great for me. Um, and in terms of getting started with Modern Classroom, the a little over a year ago, I suppose, going into the beginning of the school year last year, my principal had heard about Modern Classroom and he was looking for teachers at the Clinton School where I work um, to give it a shot and pilot it. Um, 
And as soon as I had heard about the program, I immediately jumped in. Um, So many of those buzzwords that we typically hear in special education of like equity, access, meeting students where they are, um, it felt like modern classroom was an opportunity to really put those things into practice in ways that I think as educators we strive for, but honestly don't always hit them. Um, So I immediately was interested and jumped in. And especially last year, you know, being a challenging year um, with the pandemic and teaching remotely, um, it felt like a golden opportunity to try new things and really rethink what education looks like. Um, So I jumped in. I launched my first unit remotely last year. And then I've been mentoring uh, with Modern Classroom ever since, started in the spring, and then also did the Summer Institute and in Mentoring Teachers Now. I love it. You know, I, I think uh, to be able to help teachers on that journey and try new things is really powerful. And it also gives me a lot of opportunities to reflect on what I'm doing, both in terms of my practice with Modern Classroom and just in general of, you know, I think teaching is always like a, is a lifelong pursuit in terms of learning new things. So anything that I can do to help do that for my own practice um, and obviously supporting others at the same time just feels like a win in every way. Yeah. I mean, thank you for sharing all of that. I know definitely mentoring is probably my favorite part of my job only because I get to have conversations with teachers and really I learn more from them, I feel like, than anything. So I'm really excited about the expertise and experiences that uh, we're going to talk about for this episode. So, um, all right. So before we get to the nitty gritty, right, how are you doing? How are you feeling? We're going into our second year of pandemic. Um, how's the school year going for both of you? No, it's going, it's going okay. Um, I think if you had asked me that question, maybe a couple of days ago, I could have given you a totally different answer. <laughs> I, during this time of year, I think we all know it's, it's pretty difficult for teachers. Um, we're, putting in our, our routines into place. And especially with um, middle school, I teach sixth grade. It's around now. They're kind of starting to fall into those routines. Um, and you're kind of seeing the fruits of your labor, but it's been it's been a long road to get here. So, um, But overall, though, I'm just feeling, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, I think that our, our students are really um, taking to coming back to school after a year of virtual learning, a year and a half for a lot of them. So now we're really starting to see the the fruits of our labor. Yeah, I've been seeing something similar, and I say this in the in the greatest way possible. I think the the honeymoon period of the early part of the school year, and especially being back in the building for the first time in a long time, has has worn off, and now we're really in it. Um, I think for the at least for me, I think the first couple of weeks it. it it was an adjustment period to be back in, in, in everything that that entails. Um, and the kids have been great from the start, being social with each other, I think really falling back into those routines in a really good way. Now that, you know, we're, we're hitting November, I know we have Thanksgiving break, and then we have that long stretch until Christmas. So they're sort of, they're in it, we're in it, but I feel like they're mostly engaging with everything, which I like to see. And if anything, the fact that it feels normal or as normal as can be, I feel like right now is kind of the biggest compliment I can give to where we're at in the school year. 
And that's so good to hear because I know in the beginning of the school year, a lot of teachers were just kind of frantically trying to figure out how the school year is going to look like. And I know that everyone was overwhelmed and there were a lot of uncertainties. So it's it's good to know that things are calming down a little bit. So um, that stretch to winter break is going to be so long, I feel like, but definitely deserved and needed. Um, so like I said before, right, we've gotten some really great questions about how modern classrooms support students with IEPs and 504s. So from your experience, how does modern classroom support these students who need those types of supports? And how does this model work with self-contained classes? I know, Khadija, you talked about uh, teaching self-contained um, classes, and you don't do that right now. But how do you think that this model can work with self-contained classes? Because we've gotten a lot of questions, and I'm just like, I don't know. This is not my expertise. Um, so we'd love to hear your thoughts. Definitely. Um, I like to call the model supreme differentiation because that's really what the lesson classification aspect is. Um, so the must-do tasks, those are the things that everyone needs to do to get a basic understanding the should-dos kind of cement that understanding and the aspire-to-dos extend it. But when you're in a typical class, those might all be considered must-dos. So while we may, as educators, we might want every student to do every part of every task, that's not always the best strategy for students with IEPs, right? So they, they might need some more time to work through those concepts and revise, and they do benefit from being able to, to skip some things sometimes. Um, and then just thinking about it from a logistical standpoint, once your self-paced learning becomes a routine, it really does free you to run more of those small groups and check in with students and do those things that you really can't find time to do when you're teaching in whole group. Um, and then thinking about self-contained classes, um, my experience was in um, a behavior and education support class. And so I didn't do self-pacing in that class, but seeing the benefits for my students in inclusion now. Um, when it comes to the social emotional aspect, I, I really noticed their confidence increase because when students are given some type of element of control or choice, their self-efficacy really improves. And that's really important for students with IEPs um, because they might have experienced a lot of academic letdowns in school thus far. So um, I think, especially in a self-contained class, um, when you're in middle school or higher, students already know um, they might have had that label for a while and those letdowns kind of build on each other. But when you expose them to the choice that they'll get for modern classrooms, the self-pacing, the opportunities for revision, then you'll see their confidence increase. And I, um, a lot of the things that I was going to say, Kadeja already touched on, um, but happy to, to share my experience on that. So I um, all my classes are co-taught classes. We don't have self-contained classes at my school, but I think a lot of the things um, that it benefits, I completely agree. It really is differentiation in its highest form, I think, um, in, the, in the modern classroom model. Even thinking like about the flexibility, the student choice, the self-pacing, um, I think sometimes in special education, um, it can be really easy to, when you are retroactively uh, adjusting a lesson or adjusting a unit, to really think of, okay, so here is the sort of like baseline classroom experience that I want a student to have. And if I know that a student needs to have something modified, there's inherently, I think, this tendency to ask a student to do less. Um, and maybe they don't have the opportunities to do 
those enrichment activities or even lose out on some of the core content that we really want to expose students to. And I think that in the model, by using the classifications, we can say, okay, all of those core things that we need students to learn and we need them to engage with in those must-dos, it really creates a building up situation instead of scaling back, which I really love. Um, Because then we have, you know, those students um, with IEPs, those opportunities to hit those should do's and those aspire to do's are still there. You know, there's no, there's no gatekeeping, um, you know, which I think really empowers what students can do and what they bring to the classroom. And then more on like a smaller sort of day-to-day basis, the fact that there is constant visual delivery of information. There are usually guided notes. There's really explicit instructions, the kind of language that we see so commonly in IEPs of students benefit from the use of, those are things that are naturally part of the framework of what Modern Classroom is asking teachers to do. So students are being supported in ways that sometimes doesn't even require an additional modification or adjustment of material because it's already there. And then at the same time, like Kadeja was saying, it frees up teachers in the classroom to check in with students, to give more guided support as it's needed. Um, Because that, even in a co-taught classroom where there's two of us, if there's two of us, but there's 30 students and eight to 10 of them have IEPs, they might need check-ins for different things, for different reasons, different various levels of support. So it can be really difficult to truly meet the needs of everyone in the classroom. But having a, a space where students can work more independently is easier to to get to students and really give them what they need. You both said some incredible things. I was jotting down some notes. Um, Kadeja, I completely agree about the confidence and the increase of confidence when you release control and students actually have choice and accountability and ownership of what they're learning. And I think sometimes it gets really frustrating for me as an educator when I hear other educators say like, oh, but this student has an IEP. That doesn't necessarily mean they cannot do something. Um, It just means that we need to provide them with extra support. And having that mindset is also just really problematic as well. Um, and so we have some, t- you know, we have some teachers who are talking about like, you know, students are behind pace, students are behind pace, I'm getting frustrated, what do we do with that? And um, and you both kind of just said it's spot on, right? Like we're no longer doing live lectures, so you have a lot more time to do small groups or even one-on-one um work with students, which I absolutely loved. I know prior to Modern Classroom, I'm also SPED certified. So I had a lot of students with IEPs and 504s in my class. And prior to Modern Classroom, like I didn't give them the differentiation and the accommodations and the scaffolds that they needed, which was really not okay, right? And so once I figured out how to make Modern Classroom work and I learned about it, I felt like I felt really good because my students, every single one of my students were able to excel. It wasn't a frustrating thing for me because I wasn't thinking about like, oh, I don't have time to cover, you know, their goals. I can't even accomplish like all these goals that the students have. But I feel like with Modern Classroom, it really does open it up. Um, And I really love how Noah talks about, you know, 
the model allows us to build up instead of scale back. And I feel like that's a really good thing to keep in mind, especially working with students who have IEPs and 504s. Our students are able to do anything and everything we throw at them as long as there's scaffolds, as long as there's accommodations, as long as there's like support so that these, you know, so our students, all students are actually successful. Um, so I... <laughs> Great. Like y'all are both dropping gems and I, I couldn't agree more to what you all said. Um, and so when we're talking about accommodation scaffolds, right, like how can teachers make those accommodation scaffolds with, uh, with um, the modern classroom? Is there really a need for accommodations with this model to do something that's different for students with IEPs and 504s? Or do you think that the accommodations that you are doing um, can go for like all of the students? Because I know for me, um, I feel like the accommodations can be utilized by all students and not just students with IEPs and 504s. I know that um, my students sometimes feel some type of way being like singled out or whatever. And so I just made sure like, hey, if we're going to have a book, here's the audio version of it and anyone and everyone can access it. It wasn't just for a small group of students. Um, and so how, yeah, so how can teachers make accommodation scaffolds for students with IEPs and 504s? Do you think that this is um, necessary? Um, is there a need for it with this model or does it just like authentically happen? Well, I'll say what Noah was saying earlier about accommodations kind of being embedded in the model is exactly right. Um and yeah, like Tony Rose, like you were saying, there is definitely a place for accommodations in any model. Um, but I think the real, the the great thing about modern classrooms is that the built-in differentiation and the flexibility of it helps lessen the anxiety surrounding providing those accommodations. Um, and so what I mean is like with this model, students with and without IEPs, they're able to work at their own pace with support. They're all encouraged to try again. They are all encouraged to revise. They're all learning in a flexible environment. And like Tony Rose was saying, there are things that are super hard to do with traditional teaching and learning, um, but they're necessary to provide the accommodations that a lot of kids need. And um, Noah was hinting earlier at the um, very common accommodations that we see in a lot of students' IEPs. Extended time is one that I see in pretty much every student's IEP, and that is built into the model since it's self-paced. So Again, like I'm saying, I think that a lot of the accommodations are built in, um, but of course, it's still up to teachers' discretions. There might be students who might need to stay on pace. They might need to be pulled into a smaller group to have kind of a guided self-paced group, um, and that that would be an accommodation that they could benefit from that might that every student might not um, get at the same time. Yeah, building on what uh, Kadesha was saying, you know, I think definitely the the need for additional accommodations is is definitely at the teacher's discretion. I can see, you know, in a language and literature class, you know, I can envision scenarios where I'm still giving students maybe a modified reading with guiding questions, depending on what they're reading. They might need um, a glossary, but, uh, and especially, you know, if we're approaching the end of the unit, they might need a... Um, a graphic organizer or an outline or something for planning an essay. But on a day-to-day level, again, I feel like so many of those things are so naturally built in. Like like we've talked about the self-pacing, so students have additional time if they need it, having access to materials so they can review it as they need, the visual delivery, the explicit instruction, uh, guided notes. So many of those things are already there. Um, and especially 
when being able to, when you need to work in small groups, I think something that we can so commonly see in a classroom is that, you know, students with IEPs, it's supposed to remain anonymous. The kids are not supposed to know, but like kids are smart. Kids know who the students with the IEPs are. They can just, you know, figure that out on their own. So when you can say, okay, I'm working with this group who is behind pace and needs to revise or reassess on this lesson, I can just naturally pull a group of six or seven students and maybe only three or four of them have IEPs. I'm reducing the stigma. Well, I'm not doing it. The model is allowing to reduce stigma in the classroom just by being able to pull students um, based on where they are in the lesson and not based on having an IEP or not. Yeah. And I, 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 yes, I agree. I agree with all of that, um, which I think is the reason why I'm so obsessed with modern classroom is that it just opens up so many possibilities for students to really be able to access the learning as they need. Um, and I think, you know, it's okay. Like I had one student specifically, some students need more handholding than others and that's okay. And this model allows for you to provide that handholding until, you know, you do the whole gradual release of like, you know what, we're building up your confidence and now you can do this on your own. Um, another thing that I really like about the model is that, you know, we talk about goals and like accommodations and like one of them is extended time, which is beautiful with self-pacing, right? It just aligns beautifully with self-pacing. And another thing that I really like is that when I see like, oh, like students need a break, like a five minute break or whatever, right? Like the students are able to decide when to take that break, which I absolutely like love because it's not distracting anyone else. It's not disrupting their learning. Students get to choose like, oh, like I need a three minute break right now. And that's also okay. You know? And I just... It's just it's just such a great model for students who need anything and everything to be able to be successful. Um, and so with that, when we talk about students who are behind pace and there's that negative, you know, there's that stigma, right? With like, oh, you're only working with this small group because it's students with IEPs when you actually are not doing that anymore. Looking at the pacing tracker, you can pull those students who are behind pace. Um, and so for, for teachers who are struggling a bit with, you know, hey, like 80% of my students are behind pace. What do you think that they could do to make sure that their students are on pace or ahead of pace? This is something I've been thinking about a lot uh, coming from virtual learning into the school year. Um, one of the thoughts that I've been having is that first we, we have to consider what the pace is. And I say that because, well, this year in particular, we have been struggling, and I know um, other teachers as well have been struggling across the um, the country with some faster pacing than we would like due to some new assessments and some new initiatives. Uh, there was a point during the year where we had to step back and say, look, this is not our kids' fault. They're not bad for being off pace. All of them are off pace. The pace is just too fast. So at that point, we have to rethink and, and think very carefully about how we structure our revision time and our small group time and any flexible time that we have. Small groups are a really powerful tool with two teachers in a self-paced classroom. So my co-teacher and I, at this point, we've identified students who tend to be behind pace or tend to be behind other students or who have trouble getting started. Um, and we might pull them and help them get started on those first few tasks and get those things checked off so they can have that sense of accomplishment from the beginning. And then they're, they're set up to stay as close to on pace as possible for the rest of the unit. I also say keeping things visual is something else that my co-teacher and I do in our classroom. 
Uh, we have our public progress tracker, which is digital on Canvas, but then students also have individual checklists, uh, which I know a lot of teachers who implement the model use to kind of help students keep themselves on track because they can check off what they've done. And for ours, we have them rate their understanding as well, and we'll kind of check in with them based on what they write. And so that that aspect of checking off what I've done and moving on to the next task is motivating for a lot of our students as well. So I love this question, and it's something that I feel like, especially over the summer, when mentoring over the summer, this came up a lot. Um, and I think there's a couple of different ways that you can approach it. I definitely agree with having um, the individual tracker, something about the students being able to visually track their own progress is really empowering because they can see where they are. Other things that I think are important to keep in mind is one, um, keep your units small and it's okay to have, even if you know that fundamentally it's a larger unit, if it's a unit where you are, you're reading a novel and then writing a paper or, um, you know, a, doing different historical documents, or I guess it, it looks different for different contents. Um, but by breaking down your larger unit into mini units, um, it helps students not get quite so lost at sea. If they see that they're behind pace and they're behind pace for a long period of time, I think it's understandable that a student might feel lost and frustrated. So if we have shorter units, um, it's easier for students to then get caught up and get that clean slate every couple of weeks. Um, and one way to help facilitate that is also think about what your assessment is going to be at the end of both the big unit and the mini unit. And what are those opportunities that regardless of where a student is in the unit, they're still able to participate. Say if you want to have a Socratic seminar, and you would say, you know that ideally you would like your students to have read maybe five or six poems or historical documents in order to participate in the Socratic seminar. But if you structure it so that a student can still participate, if even if they've only read two or three, it still means that your student who's behind pace can still hit that benchmark at the end, and then they get that clean slate when you go into that next mini unit. And there are ways that you can structure that, even if you're doing, um, you know, a more individual assessment, whether it be an essay or you're implementing something with a choice board. I think it sort of, again, comes back to like backwards planning. One of those things that we always talk about as teachers, knowing where you want your students to, to be at the end and then breaking it your unit down so that even if a student is behind pace, that they can still get to where they are, their personal endpoint by the end of the unit in a way that is not punitive. And that's a that's a great point. Um, I know when I did Socratic seminar for with my students, it was always the essential question. So throughout the unit, students were answering that essential question, no matter how many texts they've read, um, how many poems, or anything like that. Like they were still able to participate in the Socratic seminar. So making it like vague enough, but also like specific enough to the skills that students are able to participate, which I, I really like that point too, Noah. Um, we want to structure it in a way that all students can participate no matter where they are. And it's also okay, right? With modern classroom, yeah, we have self-pacing, but it's also okay to pick dates where you can do a whole, like a Socratic seminar or a whole group discussion or whatever it may be. It's also okay to do that and um, take a pause and just really digest and process everything that the, the students have been learning. Um, 
Um, and Kadeja, you said something that really stuck out to me is that the pace is too fast. You're right. Like even during COVID, like that first year um, last year, right? Teachers were still trying to cover as much content as they needed um, because, you know, as teachers, we think everything is important. Um, I definitely thought everything was important. And I think with this model, it allows us to slow down and be really intentional. And this is something I've been saying too, is that you have to be intentional with what you're putting in front of your students, right? Um, and so some teachers have curriculum that they have to follow. Um, and so they really have to figure out like, what is the most important skill? What is the most important thing that students need to be able to get so that they could be successful in, um, in you know, in the tasks that are provided for them. And so one thing that I'm thinking about is that, you know, the, the term learning loss, I absolutely hate that term because I don't think our students lost anything. If anything, they just learned a different way. Um, and, you know, less is more is what's popping up in my head as well. Um, and so I love that you said we get to decide that pace. As teachers, we get to decide that pace. And I really love that. Um, and I think sometimes it's kind of challenging to figure out what that pace is going to look like. And again, like Noah said, this is where backwards planning comes in. Um, and so that's... <laughs> This is this is great. Um, I, I really appreciate you all being able to articulate and voice that. And so um, another thing that I'm, I'm curious about is, you know, we've talked about co-teaching. I definitely had a co-teacher. Um, she was not doing mo a modern classroom. So it was a lot of like being able to catch her up and, you know, um, we planned together once a week so that she kind of knew what we were covering for that week and how to go about with supporting different students. And so what does co-teaching look like with this model? And I think for me, I'm just thinking, you know, if the gen ed teacher isn't doing modern classroom, but the sped teacher is, how do you work together to make sure that the students are getting what they need. And then the other way around too, right? What if the gen ed teacher utilizes modern classroom, but then sped teacher is not? Um, how could that co-teaching relationship work? Yeah, well, thinking back to that um, backwards planning about writing specifically is, is an example I love to use. Uh, if you and your co-teacher plan together, a SPED teacher and a general education teacher, um, and the SPED teacher is the one who's implementing the model, that teacher could volunteer to plan out the sustained writing tasks that are part of the unit. Um, because with writing, you can really, really, the magic of self-pacing really comes out, I've found in, in my classroom. Um, because with writing, it it's great for self-paced and mastery-based learning because you have almost endless opportunities for revision. Um, and we find that students usually need a bit slower writing instruction than we can provide traditionally. Um, and also writing tasks are really well done with conferencing, which can be done much more effectively when your students are working in a self-paced setting. Um, in terms of other situations where, say, maybe you teach an intervention class um, that is separate from the, the inclusion class, um, something that I did previously was I had some luck creating instructional videos for the spell read curriculum, and that's actually designed to teach middle school kids, middle school age kids phonics. And I created instructional videos for that. And that class was self-paced and mastery-based. And that was just based on the scripted curriculum that I was given. Um, and other curriculums that SPED teachers might be familiar with, like Read 180, those can be converted to self-paced lessons as well. 
Um, say you're within an inclusion setting, SPED teachers can definitely use the model to complement the curriculum. And I know that Noah and I are both uh, ELA language arts people. Um, so that's where all my examples are coming from. But say you're reading a whole class novel, the SPED teacher who's using the model could chunk a read aloud of the text through video. Um, maybe they could include some guiding questions and some vocabulary support. And that could be something that could be a resource for students with IEPs or actually for any student um, who could use or read a lot of the text. And if the gen ed teacher is maybe a bit resistant to that, I'd say they could be reminded, especially now that, hey, instructional videos, they are a way to provide students with access to learning, especially if they have to miss class. And that's happening pretty often right now. So this is an an interesting question. Um, And I, I think my initial answer is maybe a non-answer answer, but I think I have a real answer in there too. Um, in that I am incredibly lucky that my co-teacher, uh, one of my co-teachers, the co-teacher who I implemented the model with, while she was not doing, uh, the modern classroom program herself, she was very on board with it and really on board with us giving this a shot in our classroom. Um, so even while I was completing the program, Um, I was sort of um, trickling down what I was learning to her. And then even after I had completed the course, um, we would trade off making videos and I would, and I gave her like a crash course on what the video should look like and how we're enhancing them and embedding um, different things into the video. Um, So I, you know, ideally if you can get your co-teacher to buy in um, and really embrace the model, you know, that's, that's the ideal. Um, but again, you know, thinking about of one of one of the great things about the program is stressing flexibility. So if it's something that your co-teacher isn't on board with and you need to be flexible in terms of doing it with just a select group of students, that's fine too. You know, that's a means of being flexible and sort of echoing things that Kadeja was saying. And this I don't know just because it's not my experience, but I imagine things that you could do is how do you embed those specific supports that you might give students into your videos? Um, again, thinking about literacy, and I know I'm echoing some things that Kadeja already said, doing your read-alouds, doing your uh, modeling for annotations, your modeling of completing graphic organizers, thinking about how you are um, enhancing your videos so that way you can still utilize that gradual release model, the I do, we do, you do, how you can use that in your video so that way you are modeling for students as they move along. It's really, it's all there. You know, you can have, think about, I think it's thinking about different kinds of supports that we give for students, both in real time and what we are actually doing in the classroom and what materials we're giving them and how you can replicate those things. Because I think of the things that I would be doing for students or with students when I'm working with them, the read-alouds, the modeling, the the prompting and guiding discussions when I'm pulling a small group. I can replicate those things in how I construct my videos and how I enhance them. Um, and then the, the more material supports, I can still bake those into the lesson Um, and distribute them, whether it be on a hard copy or whether it be digitally. Um, So even if my co-teacher is resistant to using the model, as long as I'm thinking 
And to me, it always comes back to the learning target. It always comes back to that. What do I want my students to do and how am I asking them to get there? I can still replicate those things, um, whether it be in the video itself, the practice activity, or the mastery check um, in what I'm showing students, what I'm modeling for students, or additional supports when I'm asking them to complete tasks on their own. Yeah, and I guess I have a follow-up question that was not on here. Um, And so one thing that I'm thinking about is, what do you think a SPED teacher could do or say? One piece of advice where they can try and explain the model to the gen ed teacher so that the gen ed teacher is on board. What do you think is like something that they can do to start that conversation? I think where, you know, I would start is it's student empowering. It's like there's so much student empowerment in it. And like, I get that it can be scary for a teacher because it is doing things so much differently than what we do in a conventional classroom, but you are really putting student first. You are, you are decentralizing yourself in the classroom so that students are getting what they need. Um, And while it does require a lot of work, I think you're just, you're able to really provide more of what students need. And so while the lift is hard, I think it just provides more opportunity for students to learn. Um, and if that's, if that's what we're doing as educators, it's all right there. You just got to embrace it. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I think the only thing I would add on is talking to a lot of my mentees this past summer and asking them, like what they value the most about their classroom, pretty much all of them said what all of them said relationships or relationship building. And that is something that I think a lot of teachers do value very highly. And I always say that the model is, is a great tool for relationship building because instead of lecturing in front of the class for an entire period, you're able to clone yourself and you're able to actually walk around and have conversations with students and check in on them um, and notice things that you wouldn't notice if you were teaching traditionally. Um, so that, that would be my, my speech to a, to a resistant gen ed teacher. I've also been pretty fortunate to have um, some great co-teachers who've been totally on board. And that always makes it easy, right? When you want to try something new and you have a colleague or your co-teacher just super excited and down to try, it's always super useful. And so I think another follow-up question that I have is as SPED teachers, you know, there you all have a lot on your plate. I mean, really teachers. Um, and so how, how do you manage your time? How do you, because I know that I met with a teacher who's a SPED teacher and worked with all content. So like science, social studies, math, and um, ELA. How do you... How how do you manage your time when you're creating videos, but also, you know, you have your caseload, you have a group of students that you're working with, you have different subjects that you're looking at. Um, what's a tip that you have for SPED teachers when it comes to managing your time and planning? Uh, I would say using templates as much as possible is the uh, biggest tip that I would have. Um, so for your instructional videos, for me, I always use the same PowerPoint templates and I just copy them and I include a different objective. And then I write out my script in the same place and I always follow the same workflows. And that really makes it a lot easier to make those videos. Um, In terms of creating assignments and things like that, the blended aspect of the model makes it easy to uh, create multiple versions of things even in less time than I think it would take to, to do it traditionally. Um, On Canvas, I can kind of just copy something and then change a couple of questions and I have different versions. Um, and that that's a big time saver. 
Um, this year, I don't manage a caseload, so I can't add to that aspect. But as for last year with the virtual learning aspect added in, um, templates was still very important for that. But also trying to keep things manageable. So like Noah was saying, when we're thinking about planning for our students, we also have to think about planning for us and what we are able to realistically do. Um, So I had to learn how to condense my units to a point where I wasn't having them write a whole essay in three days. Um, I might have them write a chunk of it, something that was manageable for them to do as well as for me to create. So I love this question. I'm perfectly okay with the idea that all all teachers work very hard. I see all of you, and I definitely do not minimize any struggle for any teacher. Um, but I'm also okay with saying that special education teachers get pulled in more directions for various different reasons than your general education teacher. So the management of all of that, even not even thinking about modern classroom, but just being a special education teacher, there's just so much there. Um, so really echoing so many things that Kadeja was saying, I completely agree with of like, how do you streamline your process? Um, for me, I know um, my, when I'm putting guiding questions on readings, obviously those questions are going to be different based on what the text is and what I need students to get from the reading. But the fact that I have that format down makes it really easy for me to go and do that task. My outlines and graphic organizers, when I'm asking students to write essays or any sort of written task, I have that format down where at this point, when I need to make a new one, I'm really not making a new one. I'm copying it. I'm changing a little bit of the language based on the prompt and the task. But that template is essentially done. Um, I think other parts, a lot of it comes down to your co-teaching relationship Um, and this, I'm going to be on my soapbox for a moment or two, but that's okay. You know, there are times where our responsibilities as a special education teacher differ from our teaching partners. And we always want to be respectful of that, but also having a time when you can say no. Um, when I have, if a big assignment has come up and grading needs to be done, um, but if I have three, uh, IEP reports to write, Uh, on top of my own IEPs that I need to write, um, just telling your, your, your gen ed teacher, your teaching partner, like I cannot do that now because I need to write these IEP reports. Um, And I think respectfully, you know, coming from a position of like not asking for permission for those things, just making it abundantly clear of like, this is what I need to do now. And so I need to step back on those things. Um, I had another point. And now I lost it because I stood on my soapbox about how to manage your relationships with your co-teachers, which I think is huge. Um, it's, such a, it's such a big component of being in a successful co-teaching environment, of just being really clear of what your expectations are of each other. And I think you know various teachers are better at sharing space and responsibilities than others, but remembering that your license is just as valid as theirs is, and you are an expert just as much as they are and making space to do what you need to do. Ah, I do remember my last point. I think sometimes um, it can be easy for a special education teacher to say, okay, this is what's happening in the lesson. I need to make this. I need to make that. I need to make that. But also remembering that sometimes your modifications and your accommodations is just the things that you are doing in the classroom. 
So not saying to not make those modifications as they're needed, um, but there will be times where you might be looking for something that needs to be modified that doesn't actually need it. If I'm pulling a small group and I'm reading an excerpt of a text and reading it out loud so they can hear it, so they can just focus on their annotations, I might not be actually making a material for that, but based on what I'm actually doing in the classroom, I am providing support. And I think once teachers can be comfortable with that idea, you reduce your workload at least a little bit by not scrambling to make adjustments to every single piece of material. Those are all very valid, valid, valid points. Oh my goodness. Um, And I know that I'm still working on saying no to a couple of assignments. It's really difficult, right? But I think just protecting our time and protecting our energy is really important. Um, And like both of you said, templates and having structures is really important so that you can continue providing that consistency for yourself and also for your students. Um, And also just maintaining that relationship with your co-teacher is super important. I know that I've had co-teachers almost every year that I've worked, and that was for 10 years. Um, And it was really, really, really important to have that communication. And I know how um, overwhelming it is sometimes for my co-teachers because they have multiple grades, multiple subjects. And, you know, and it was just an open conversation of like, hey, what are you capable of doing right now? Um, This is what I had in mind. If you can't, if you don't have the capacity to do that, that's also okay. So I think, again, having that communication, open and honest communication, and just being able to protect your time because writing IEPs, I've never done it and I don't ever think I want to do it because I know it's just so time consuming. And so, you know, that's our time. I have like so many more questions, but just, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you both for joining us for this episode to talk about special education. Um, And hopefully, you know, our listeners are able to get a couple of things based off of what we just talked about. Um, But thank you both for saying yes. We may have to do another episode based off of more questions that are probably going to come in about special education. Um, But Modern Classroom is super, super grateful for both of you. Our listeners are super grateful for both of you. So again, thank you so much for taking this time to talk with us about your expertise. Of course. It was great being here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to talk about all this and and support other teachers. It's great. Yay. Okay. So um, everyone, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools. Have a great week. And we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast.